Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, that Kay Burley interview with Alton Towers' boss. People have called for her to be sacked after she interrogated the CEO about the injuries suffered by a ride crash victim. Did she go too far? Journalists given targets for page views. Some Trinity Mirror journalists will now be held responsible for increasing the number of people who read their articles online. Is this a conflict of interest and will it lead to worse journalism? And trouble at Twitter. They're facing a clutch of problems including falling user growth figures, disappointing revenues and now its CEO's recently resigned. What's next for the site? And as usual, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest. Pete Picton is editorial director at Mirror Online and Rebecca Clancy is head of business breaking news at The Times. Media Focus. So first up, Kay Burley has been criticised for asking for details of the injuries suffered by a theme park crash victim in an interview with the company's CEO. Although Ofcom recently received more than 2,000 complaints and a petition calling for Burley's sacking, gathered more than 50,000 signatures, she's been cleared of any wrongdoing. Some have been left incredulous by this attack, saying it amounts to no more than masked sexism in journalism. Rebecca, what do you, what do you make of this? Do you think that Kay did go too far in the interview? No, I don't think she did. I think she asked the questions that anyone in her position would have asked. I think maybe she went about it the wrong way and and was quite aggressive. But in her defence, she had the only interview with the CEO of Mellon Entertainment, who owns Alton Towers. So what was she expected to ask? She needed to know. Well, we all needed to know. We've all been to the theme parks. I, I absolutely love a roller coaster. I do too. We all want to know, is it safe to go back? What happened? Why did it happen? And what are you going to do to prevent it happening again? She asked all of the key questions and the strong rumours doing the rounds that morning were that one of the girls unfortunately had had her leg amputated. For her not to ask the question would have seemed bizarre. And if she hadn't asked, it would have been a case of why didn't she ask the question and was she being insincere? No, I don't believe she was being insincere. What that question was doing was almost demonstrating the severity of the accident and how bad it had been and, and the answers that Mellon had to answer to. So potentially she went about it too aggressively and listening to the interview and to be fair to her she actually only asked the question twice whereas she's went on and on and on about safety for the 10 or so minutes that the interview lasted for i think she was right to ask the question uh she did interrupt ever so slightly too much but i'm not a broadcaster and coming from a newspaper background we have the uh benefits of not being live on television Mm. um but what i think ultimately comes down to and what we as journalists have to live by is the taste test would she have passed the taste test I would suspect, from my point of view, not the way that she did it, but I think she was right to ask the question. And do you think that's the problem, really? Because when you think of the the famous kind of clips of, like, uh, Jeremy Paxman interviewing Michael Howard and him refusing quite clearly to answer the question, um, you know, seven or eight times, clearly the Alton Towers CEO did try to answer the question in his own way, uh, even acknowledged the limitations of what he could and couldn't answer within the answer, but she kept pressing it and didn't really get anything new out of him. Do you think, in that sense, it was a waste of time? Yeah, I mean, having listened to the interview, as I said, uh, she sort of went around in circles for about 10 minutes to be honest and uh, as you just mentioned she just kept asking and pushing and she wasn't really getting anything new out of him um i mean she was listening to what he was saying but uh, she was slightly misinterpreting i think what he was saying and i think the interview was four days after the accident had happened and i'm sure being a cynic he had a wealth more information than he was handing over but of course that's his job as well so there's only so much that he can actually say and probably 10 minutes was too much to fill with that segment but um, yeah, she pushed and she pushed and she wasn't getting the answers that she wanted and, and maybe she went too far. But I think ultimately she asked the right questions, but it probably could have been condensed down into about five minutes. Did you feel sorry at all for the Alton Towers CEO? No, it's the territory of running a company like that. If those accidents happen, you have to be prepared to go on TV and explain why it happened and be answerable to your customers and, and your investors. 
And from his point of view, do you think he acquitted himself well? I mean, he, he quite he quite obviously challenged Kay in the interview, saying that he was misrepresenting her, you know, in the interview. Yeah, I think he did. I think he held his own. Um, I mean, I don't personally know the man, but he, I think, I think he came across quite well. Uh, I think he actually seemed visibly um, upset by the whole thing, actually. But it's his job. Uh, and he has taken that position knowing full well that if anything happened, he is the face of the company and he has to be answerable. And so the fact that he actually gave one interview is probably a bit of a tarnish against him. I think Kay Belly got the only interview and it was four days after the accident. Probably took too long to come out. Probably took too long to answer any questions. Um, but I did think he came across quite well. I mean, clearly, I think at that point, although it wasn't officially known, uh, they, they knew off the record that the, the young lady had to have a, was going to have to have a leg amputated. I mean, clearly Kay knew that off the record and the Alton Towers CEO knew that but couldn't reveal it. Do you think she was a little bit mischievous in trying to get him to reveal it? Or do you think all's fair in love and war? No, I think we've all been in a position, I think, Pete, maybe you'd agree with this, that we've, we've asked questions that we knew that we weren't necessarily supposed to ask, but maybe we'd get an answer out of them. And I mean, this is unfortunate. The girl lost her leg and... and and that's that's dreadful. Um, but the, the rumours were out there. And by the time that she was asking the question, we all pretty much knew he was right not to confirm, in my opinion, because, as he said, it's very personal information. It's not for him to really say. It's for the family to um, announce that. But, no, I think, you know, we're journalists. Our job is to ask the difficult questions that other people don't want to ask. That's why we do the job that we do, to hold people to account, to make sure that the news gets out there and to make sure that nothing gets hidden. Uh, and in that sense, I think Kay did a good job. Pete, I mean, it's breaking news. She wouldn't have been given much notice of the interview and she clearly gave him hell. I mean, uh, are you? Uh, do you agree with Rebecca then that she did the right thing? I do. Um, and Ofcom agree with her as well. So Rebecca mentioned the taste test. Well, Ofcom have ruled that there was today that there wasn't anything wrong with the interview. Uh, it was a long interview. It was 11 minutes. Uh, I think she had to, as a journalist, she had to get to the detail of what happened. And... Um, it was a, an interview, her boyfriend, uh, Leah Washington's boyfriend, the, the girl who had the leg amputated, gave a, uh, a very moving uh, interview to the Mail on Sunday at the weekend, which had a lot of detail what actually happened on that ride. And uh, it's a public ride. Uh, Safety is important. I think she was right to, to, to grill him. Um, and people responsible for rides like that, where the public safety is uh, paramount, uh, should be accountable. Thank you, in fairness to Nick, uh, Nick Varney, the, the, the executive at, uh, at Merlin. He went on uh, and gave an interview, uh, and I think that was commendable, especially in the time as journalists we find it so difficult to get to people uh, and so much of, of the information that we can get at is controlled. Uh, and agreed to be interviewed by Kay Burley, knowing that she's a fierce interviewer. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think, I think that was the right thing to do. Um, but I think she was right to pursue it. What, what I find interesting is the amount of response it's had so the petitions had 50,000 55,000 signatures 2,000 complaints to Ofcom I do feel there is merit in um, some of the complaints about those complaints which have uh, you mentioned Paxman and John Humphreys as well had she been a male interviewer with that sort of style would it have created the same sort of reaction uh, just looking at some of the comments that have been made um one person said she came across as illogical and hysterical. I don't think she was. Uh, I think sexist comment. You wouldn't have said that about a man. Uh, well, I would have thought so. I, th I think it was a difficult interview. It was 11 minutes long, as Rebecca mentioned. There was information there that he couldn't pull out, and she knew about it. Uh, it was live. Uh, it was a moving news story, but I thought she did very well. So I think some of these accusations uh, or, or complaints about Kay Burley, I say, veer slightly on the sexist, in my opinion. Um, I think she's right to probe, to keep answering those questions, because we needed to know. 
We need to know what happened and what went wrong. I think, Pete, there's a, there's a question, though, isn't there, in terms of broadcast journalism? I mean, we had uh, John Humphreys on the podcast last week, and he was saying that, you know, if a minister doesn't answer the question two or three times, you simply move on because you hope that the, the listeners will conclude of their own volition that, you know, the minister's not going to answer the question. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, having watched the interview, it was pretty obvious that he wasn't going to shed any more new light after she'd asked the question, say, two or three times. Do you think she was right? I suppose it's a question of where you draw the line. Do you keep pushing it, uh, or, or do you kind of allow the audience to draw their own conclusions? I think that that's that's a fair criticism. Um, I think looking back on the interview, uh, and I'm sure she she might say so herself. You might have wanted to go into other areas of of how long it took to respond, how long they're on the rides for. Um, she did push quite strongly on the safety measures, and uh, it turns out they they tested the ride with two cars before taking 40 minutes testing before the accident happened. So. Perhaps she could have opened it out into other areas to get at the detail of what had happened. And obviously that'll come out in, in an inquiry, but I think she was right to push, definitely. I mean, Rebecca, do you think there is any sexism here? Because, you know, when uh, Paxman is interviewing the, the former Home Secretary, Michael Howard, and he's told by the gallery that he's got another three minutes to fill, that's the real reason why he kept pressing him on whether he threatened to uh, um, sack Derek Lewis. I mean, Kay was obviously given free reign to, uh, on a 24-hour rolling news channel to ask, ask the questions as she saw fit, but do you think it is sexism that people criticise her for being shrill, has been said, but they don't criticise Paxman when he wants to lay into the Home Secretary? Well, I think, some, I think Paxman does get complaints as well. I mean, not to the scale that we saw against Kay Burley, but, I mean, I, I, I hate the sexism argument. Um, I think it's almost sexist, sexist that we call it sexism, and is that the case? I mean, she pushed and she pushed and she was asking what could clearly be seen as insensitive questions. I mean, from my point of view, I agree she should have asked the question. But, um, yeah, I mean, I can see the sort of, the as Pete was just saying, some of the comments that she got, I mean, other things that she was described on Twitter were unprofessional, vicious, sociopath. I mean, they have nothing to do with what sex of she course. is. Um, that was just more about her approach. So I'd like to think that it wasn't sexist. I'd love to think that we lived in a world where it didn't exist, but I'm not that naive. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure there is an undertone of sexism about the whole thing. What do you think about the culture of of this organised upset these days? I mean, I remember when uh, Russell Brand and Jonathan Ross famously had the Andrew Sachs thing. The, the mail kind of whipped up the complaints, and, and I can't ever recall, you know, Paxman getting this number of thousands of complaints almost instantaneously. Do you think that the viewers have moved on now and what have this kind of organised outrage? Well, I'd be interested to know how many of those fifty five thousand people who signed the petition have actually seen the interview. I think, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes there is a bit of a mob mentality of, oh, what are we complaining about? Let's, oh, you're complaining about that. Let's get behind that. That actually, you know, looking into it and sitting down and thinking for a second. Actually, do you know what? This man runs a company where there's been an accident and a girl has lost her leg. Tough questions need to be asked. And yes, yeah, so I do think there is a sort of feeling. And as you're saying about Russell Brand, again, I mean, how many people actually listened to that interview? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> Me being a cynic again, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I do think people get behind these things. 2,000 is a much more accessible number to believe that they'd actually seen it. 55,000 implies to me that maybe people were just sending us to their friends saying, Kay Burley, let's get rid of her, let's cost someone their job. Which is a dreadful thing at the end of the day to be calling for someone's job. But, uh, and what she didn't deserve, I don't think she deserves it. I mean, Pete, I, I watched it. I didn't watch it live, I admit, but uh, someone sent me a link to it later on that night and said, you've mm -hmm. got to watch this. It's TV gold, as it were, and it was on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I watched the whole thing, and I thought she overdid it a little bit, but I, I didn't think it was particularly outrageous. I thought the interview was maybe three minutes longer than it ought to be, and she probably asked the question two more times than she ought to do. But you never know whether the gallery were trying to ask her to extend the interview because of a delay with the next OB or anything like that. You just don't know what was going through her head. Yeah, I mean, if you read the petition at change.org, it, it says... 
She was rude and patronising, not giving him the chance to explain, and when he did get the chance to explain, she continued to dismiss his comments and further trying to damage the company, thinking that she was clever. Well, the, the interview I saw, she did give him chance to explain. In fact, I agree with you. Perhaps she gave him too much chance well, to explain. Well, Ofcom ruled saying that he had plenty of chance to explain. Exactly. The story for us online did very, very well. Um, each aspect of it did incredibly well. Um, now, why that is, obviously, is an interesting story. We're talking about it. But I, th- I do think there is a feeling around perhaps having a go at her personally as opposed to her as a professional, in my view. I mean, when I spoke to John last week, he was saying that a lot of people, you know, would criticise him for, you know, constantly uh, repeating the question and trying to get ministers and, and these kind of chief execs who have been over-media trained to answer the question. But he said that when you actually look at the surveys, the public are very much on his side. They say, well, he wouldn't have to ans- ask the question so many times if that person gave a straight answer. And the audience are very much on the side of the interviewer. Do, do you think in this case, then, that, uh, you know, there's, the, the media seems to have focused a lot on the petition against K, but there's a lot, you know, a quiet majority, as it were, a lot of people that actually support her in her interviewing style? I think if it was my children gone to Alton Towers that day and had been involved in that accident and uh, it wasn't just the accident, it was the aftermath um, it was a terrible ordeal for them I think I'm right in saying that, that uh, Joe P was saying in his interview that uh, they're on the ride for four hours so they can get them out uh, because of the nature of the injuries and the crash bar across them is a very difficult job, he did say the rescue workers were absolutely fantastic, um, so no criticism there but if it was my family and my children there, I would certainly want the chief exec to be given a grilling like that, at the very least. Can I just say, we're sort of sat here criticising or not criticising Kay Burley about the interview. One of the things I found most strange about the interview, actually, was the addition of an extra reporter at the end to basically ask Nick Farney exactly the same questions I that, that Kay Burley well. had asked, but yeah. worded Thomas slightly Moore differently. And so I thought that was actually quite... That yes. was almost the most bizarre part of the interview. He asked the same things, and yet he hasn't been mentioned at all in this. But he... I suppose that goes back to the sexism point that you were making. But no, no question, and... From our point of view, we would never have um, two people sat in an interview and then one person does all of it, all of it, all of it, and then with a minute to spare, someone else chips in and it just seems a bit bizarre that that was how they had actually conducted the interview. So I'm not entirely sure why all this focus is on Kay Burley. I know she asked the question that everyone's upset about, about the amputation, but at the end of the day, there was another reporter there asking the same questions, maybe just worded slightly differently. I wonder if it has taken away from the agenda. I mean, all aspects of the story have been very well read online for us, not just Kay, uh, Kay Burley aspect uh, but I wonder if it has taken the agenda away slightly in what uh, sense well are we not missing the important point here which is the accident safety failures on the part the of safety Merlin failures etc um, that to me is the nub of the story here surely do you think given the grilling that he got that this is going to make CEOs of companies involved in, in accidents less likely to appear in the media and more likely to listen to their PR guys and say just put out a written statement saying you know we feel terrible for generic accident X no I like to think they would never let them get away with that that they'll always be held accountable, that we'll always be able to get hold of them and that they should show their face in times like this. I've not had to be on that side of managing a crisis like this, um, but I think it's the right thing for a head of a company to be open and public about what's happened in an event like this. They should do. And when we talk a lot about press freedom, there's the other side of the coin, and you talked about the public. The public should demand that their public officials are accountable. So next up, journalists working in Trinity Mirror's Midland offices will now be held personally responsible for growing their online audience and will be evaluated by figures such as page views and uniques. Many people have criticised this approach, dubbed page view journalism, and said that it would only lead to journalists churning out link bait and listicles in the place of serious investigative reporting. Pete, what's your view? I mean, newspapers are declining revenues. Do you think that this is uh, far-sighted and necessary or do you think that this is uh, a bit of a, a cheap device? 
I think we've always had targets in journalism. Um, I've worked in digital, print, magazines, not a lot of radio, as you can probably tell. Um, <laughs> You're but- doing well so far. <laughs> Still here. Um, we, we've always had targets. It's been circulation in the past. The difference now is we can measure things to the nth degree. And a that, blessing and a curse, if you ask me. Absolutely a blessing and a curse. It gives you uh, a very clear picture, but it's how you can still interpret that in, in many ways. And I think one of the things with, with this story, and, and I should stress, it's not part of... Uh, I work for the mirror.co.uk, so this is part of my regional group, which I, I, I don't have responsibility for. There's an overall picture to how your uh, website or your publication performs. Obviously, circulation or readership, however you want to term it, is, is very important, but... It's also how the brand works, how the readers have a relationship with that uh, that brand, and more and more it's about engagement. So it's about people coming back. And um, the Mirror, like a number of, of media outlets, are, are building a digital future, hopefully. And to do that, they've got to have people that come back to the brand. So I think the worry about clickbait is, is overplayed, to be quite frank. That we tend to measure, or we're, uh, I, mean, I tend to, to look more at unique visitors. Uh, that's as close as I can get to real people, uh, a measurement of real people. Uh, we look at engagement as well, and obviously we want to, we want them to come back and, and trust us as a brand, uh, and not just be flyby visitors through social media or, or SEO uh, or anything like that. Although we love that as well, but once they come in, we want them to come back. So I always feel that if you cheat them in any way, if you if you don't deliver on a headline. If you make a false promise, as a number of non-news organisations do, and and have seen that work in a short term for them, they're not going to build a long-term future for themselves. So it's a harder road, uh, but it's the one you've got to go down. Um, I think also what gets forgotten in the digital world is um, certainly the mirror and other places I've worked at, um, what works very well. Hard news actually works harder than anything else. It, it always has. Everyone talks about... Um, certain aspects of digital and focus on that but actually good old solid hard news works very well and anyway click, clickbait's not not new in, in those terms um, there was a story last week which I'd missed and I, I caught up on today but it was the death of Vinnie Massetto who they call the godfather of clickbait and um, he worked at New York uh, Post he wrote that famous headline headless body in topless bar uh, was one of his he died at the age of 79 and he's also responsible for such gems as 500 pound sex maniac goes free uh, Gaddafi goes daffy granny executed in a pink pajamas and my favorite i slept with a trumpet <laughs> very very good but pete do you not think playing devil's advocate though for a second that you know like you said there was always a metric which was the circulation of the paper but now it's actually because it's so granular down to individual stories of journalists journalists can be less collegiate isn't less of a teamwork you know the the circulation figure was was the the product of the whole team's output measured in one newspaper whereas now do, do you think there's because it's arguably too granular you know journalists aren't necessarily going to be as team focused as they used to be because it's all about that individual post and, and the number of unique hits to that I, I disagree with that i mean obviously that's that's an evil you could go down that route um and again through through um history journalism individual journalists have been measured in the past uh the the tabloid um magazines in the states the globe the inquirer had uh, a famous system whereby uh, they had a number of desks competing against each other. And if those desks didn't have stories on the front page after four weeks, then the editors of those desks were quietly removed. So, you know, measurement of performance, and that's quite an extreme example, has always been there. But in digital, it's more than just someone writing a story. So you have you still have your editors, still have your homepage editors. 
you still have your social team around those all that all that go towards making that story work um and in fact the most valuable work uh, uh, of a digital team are not necessarily the people writing the stories although that's massively important obviously it's the editors around them that's still still part of the mix uh, the stories still have to be chosen the stories still have to be put on the on the home page uh, they still have to decide where that story goes how it's treated Homepage editor might rewrite the headline. There's all sorts of variables that can go in to, to drive the traffic or change the performance or, 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 or make that story work a lot harder. Also, not every single person in that organisation are, are constantly writing stories, um, as I mentioned with the homepage editor, etc. Plus, you might have people that work on longer-term stories, and I think this is really important in the mix. We talked a little bit about this uh, before we came on air. Exclusive stories still drive incredible amount of traffic as long as they're good stories. Mm. It may be a shorter span, so it may be two hours in, instead of you know a day sale the next day, but that ultimately is what drives or what will win in the digital battleground. So if you ask me anything, what's important in future digital is protect that journalism that on top of writing lots of stories, you've got a group of people who can go out and find unique content. Unique content to your area if it's local, uh, unique content that's national if it's something like ourselves. Uh, we're fortunate at the minute we've got great group of journalists working there can bring out great stories and, and stuff like that that is massively important otherwise you just become as bland as everyone else and pretty quickly you will disappear so when you talk about measuring traffic and performance and all this you've got to take all those things into account and i think that that's the bit that's kind of missing out of this story having talked to a couple of people there this, uh, today that bit is just as important because it reflects on on your site especially being uh, local sites the local um, the local traffic, the local relationship with the readers is massively important. And not every story you do will be a massive traffic driver, but it will be important in the mix. Rebecca, where are you on the blessing stroke curse spectrum? It's as if Pete just read my notes. Um, I totally agree. Did he? I saw him looking yeah, shifty. I know. I agree. Clickbait, uh, while nothing new, is also quite a short-term view on how you get people to your website. Um, if you trick people with headlines, they will no longer look at when it comes through or they see it on Twitter or Facebook, they'll know that actually when they click through, you're not offering them anything, you're not adding anything to their, what they're reading. Fool so me once, can't get fooled again, as George well, W. Bush exactly, famously said. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I mean, and as you, as you mentioned, there's so many metrics out there now. So me personally, when I'm looking after the Times business page, I don't just look at the number of users. As with Pete, I look at unique, I look at engagement time. I also look at recirculation, you know, are people coming to the website and are they looking at one story and then saying, oh, that's another good story. And then they're thinking, oh, actually, this is a good website and actually you put some good news stories up. Um, and as we were just we were just speaking about then, individual writers are key to making a website work. And they can be competitive against each other and they can drive each other and they can get exclusive stories that do really well. But as a website, that is the most important thing. So it's about the numbers as a whole and providing the best news for the reader. And as Pete was saying, going out there and getting the exclusives and getting the longer-term investigative stories, investing in your journalism, because it's all about your brand. It's all about the longer term. And your readers, I mean, I work behind for The Times behind a paywall. We have to offer our readers, they're paying, so we have to offer them the best possible news. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to work for a paper who does believe in investing in its journalism and does allow journalists to go out, you know, when they're onto a story, like the great story about the Rotherham Files, Years and years of investigations went into that. And, and, and I think that's what creates a brand. You have to invest, making sure that you're still adding value, you're providing for your reader. And I think that's really important. And I think, as you said, 
you can't keep tricking your reader with clickbait because they just they'll just stop coming. It's too short term, and you have to just keep producing good quality journalism. How does it work in terms of your personal function within the Times? Because you're head of business breaking news. I imagine that lends itself to online because I, yeah, I subscribe yeah. to the Times, but I don't I don't read the paper on the morning for breaking news. <laughs> I read it for analysis. How does it work in terms of that function? So, uh, for example, on the business webpage, we have a live blog. So that starts at seven o'clock in the morning. So when all of the corporate news starts coming out, we're live blogging that. And that runs down the side of our page. So actually, you can just log on to our website and you can and it pops out now, which is great. So it's much easier to read. Um, so you can just read that. And as stories break throughout the day, um, they get up on the website. But, you know, it's not all about 30 seconds. This has happened. Let's go, go, go. You know, you can take half an hour and you are lucky enough to have a great team of writers in the team and they can produce really good copy and they know their subjects so well. So I'm, I'm really lucky in that sense that they can produce good stories and provide analysis within those stories. Um, and so then they get, I'm sure it's the same with the mirror, that they go onto the, our tablet, they will update. On, we have a live section on our tablet. And on mobile, they'll update on there as well. So it does keep constantly. So it depends when you want to read the Times, I suppose. If you just read it for the tablet edition, great. It's a brilliant app. But there, we do provide also news throughout the day. Um, and I think that's important. And it's not just about breaking news, which the BBC do very well. It's about providing context. Why, why do you care about that story? Why am I reading this? It's, you know, that's our job to make you understand or to translate into income. I mean, business can be quite clunky, let's be honest, and they try to hide behind all this jargon. Our job is to translate that into English for you. So that's what we need to do day to day, hour by hour. Just we live in a 24-hour news cycle, so we have to be constantly providing people. It's not up to us to dictate when people read the news. As the stories break, we provide analysis and context, and, and that's what we hope our readers are enjoying. <laughs> Pete, any final comments before we move to the final story? Well, I have a target. Um, everywhere I've worked as an editor, I've had a target. You have an overall target of where the business wants you to get to. Uh, I think the, the sensible option is, uh, are those targets reasonable? And uh, what, what does it tell you about your business and how it's growing and the, the growth pattern of that business? So um, I worked uh, a few years ago on a magazine called Heat, um, which initially wasn't a great success. Uh, became a great success because because they looked at their t- they looked at what they wanted to do with the targets and reassessed how they were going to get there and took a very sensible view about it and kept the same staff but looked at it in a different way. Uh, any publishing business has to have readers and you've got to grow that. Um, but I agree with with the point of the question: How do you grow that without damaging your 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 business, your product, your 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 brand? And I think that's with good solid quality journalism. So last up, Twitter now faces a clutch of problems, including disappointing user growth figures and worse-than-expected financials. It has also recently been battered by a number of legal disputes resulting from users using its Periscope app to stream pay-per-view sports events. These problems supposedly led to the recent resignation of long-term CEO Dick Costolo, although the company insists he resigns of his own accord. Rebecca, do you think Twitter's in serious trouble? What do you think the future holds? I hope not. I am a uh, serial Twitter user, so <laughs> I hope it survives. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no question that growth is slowing, but I think we should put this into context ever so slightly. It's still a massive company, and the rates at which it was growing, so two years ago, its user base was growing by 30%. That's slowed to 14%. So it's still growing at quite a rapid race, rate. Um, that is likely to grow. There's some figures out from eMarketer, and they were saying that in um, by 2019, the growth will dwind- dwindle to 6%, but I know a lot of companies that would love to grow by that much. It's still a 23 billion market cap company. It's massive. And in 2009, it was a 1 billion market cap company. So 
the trajectory at which it's growing surely has to slow. It can't keep going at that pace. You you could argue... You run out of people eventually. Well, yeah, I mean, you could say that. I mean, Twitter's user base is three hundred, just over 300 million a month. Um, Facebook's is 1.4 billion. So you can see why people are saying that actually maybe Twitter is uh, in a bit of trouble. Um, being a cynic, as I've mentioned earlier, I would say that Dick Costello did go because of the challenges with user growth. They've put in Jack Dorsey, a co-founder. Actually, I was just reading today that one of the early investors, Prince Alawid bin Talal, has said that he doesn't want Jack Dorsey to be the permanent CEO. So that's going to cause more problems. And I imagine behind the scenes, he's mm. making his voice heard. So. I don't think Jack actually wants to be there permanently. Well, yeah, I mean, he came out and said, you know, if I'll do it, if you want me to do it. But um, I mean, I probably wouldn't want that chalice, to be honest. No. But um, yeah, I mean... Twitter has been criticised heavily for what it's invested into. Periscope, as you mentioned, has been criticised for live sport um, feeding. Um, it's been, I mean, not just that, it's been criticised for a lot of the acquisitions or lack of acquisitions, I should say, that it's been making. It's not been introducing new features, new functionality. Um, and the biggest complaint really is how do new users get involved? I mean, I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago who's very bright, very clever guy, and he was talking to me about Twitter and he just cannot get his head around it. Because every time he goes onto the website, it's just a mass of words moving too quickly and he can't translate that into anything that he can do anything with. So he doesn't he doesn't bother with Twitter, basically. I think with Twitter, those of us who have been long-term adopters, we know what to do. I mean, I, I use TweetDeck daily. I'm sort of on it all the time. Um, and that's fine because I know how to use it. But for new users, I can completely see where the, where the problems lie. And I think that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to attract the new users by making it easier to use, by, I don't know, maybe simplifying it, by adding more functionality so you can make it easier to pull out things or keywords. And I know they've got hashtags, but, I mean, even things like that baffle people, which I totally understand. So I think they're just going to have to simplify it slightly and maybe go back to their roots and remember why people like myself loved it at the start and still love it now and maybe just go back to that and start again. Do you think that Twitter was late to the game in terms of acknowledging online bullying? Anecdotally, a lot of people that I know that have left Twitter have done so because, you know, they've said the odd comment here and there and they've just got attacked on it, whether it might be Scottish nationalism or whatever. And uh, some of the the vitriol can be, you know, incredibly unpleasant. And Dick Costello famously said, actually, that they'd got it wrong. Do you think they've done too little too late on that particular aspect? Oh, it's absolutely horrific what people get away with saying on Twitter. And I absolutely agree with the police when they clamp down and people report the vicious tweets it's absolutely disgraceful and I can totally see why people leave the website um, yes they have been too slow but then I could argue that Facebook have been too slow I mean there have been far too many instances of young teenagers killing themselves because of bullying on Facebook and Facebook were too slow to react they've been a bit better now but Twitter needs to be careful that they don't fall under that same umbrella as well I mean, and as you mentioned Dick had said that had, had accepted that that was a problem but that is the downside of Twitter. Twitter is also a great medium for, I mean, how else do you access your favourite celebrity or your favourite sports stars or when your favourite footballer walks off the pitch and tweets straight away, you don't have to wait for the next morning's paper. Uh, and it's just a great way to connect. But Twitter do need to be aware that there are horrible, vicious people out there who are purely on Twitter to attack others. And I think that has to be looked at. And they do, that's definitely an area that they need to work on. I think one of the things that's really odd for me, I mean, I, I'm a massive Twitter user like you, but I think it's strange how it equalises everyone. So on my feed, I can have my wife, then Barack Obama, and, you know, then Vic and Bob. <laughs> and they're all just tweets, aren't they? It's all as if it, equal, it weights them equally as, yeah, it, as if they are. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think that's a brilliant side of it. And so I, th- I think that's why um, it's so easy to use. And look, it's been amazing. I mean, not to draw on the negatives too much, 
um, it has been good for other things as well. So Arab Springs started from Twitter. Mm. You know, all the, I mean, the problems that have arisen from that afterwards are obviously not great. But, um, you know, people came together and they felt like they could fight and they could, you know, fight for democracy and go out onto the streets and they all came together and it was all via social media. And so it definitely has a place. And I, I, I hope Twitter find their way because it's a great medium, but they do have things they need to resolve, they need to make it easier, they need to clamp down on the bullying um, and they need to add functionality that they can control and new features such as Periscope that they have more control over. And maybe it's just a case of getting more moderators in and maintaining the website and, you know, maybe they're hiring the wrong kind of people. I don't know that, that side of it, to be honest. Um, I think Snoop Dogg becoming chief executive is probably not their best idea. <laughs> I believe he's thrown his name into the hat. I don't think you'll get it. Pete, do you, uh, I mean, do you think this is just like teething troubles? That the, the company's gone through its great inflationary phase, everything's great, it's, it's getting to the maturity now, that inflationary phase is slowing down, and all companies that go through this kind of cycle hit these kind of problems along the, on the way. I think... Um, there's a piece by a chap called Chris Sacker, if I pronounced it correctly, who I don't know, but he's a major Twitter shareholder. And one of the things he highlights is is uh, what was touched on just now, which is that almost one billion users have tried Twitter and not stuck stuck around. And he, he cites three things that they should look at. And number one is make, make, make tweets effortless to enjoy, make it easier for all to participate and make each of us on Twitter feel heard and valuable. So I think that's if they want scale, they need to look... Uh, to the point, they need to look at, at making it easy to use. I know it, it, it's it's simplistic in one way, but very complex in another. Having said that, Periscope, which I absolutely love, is simplicity itself, and I think that's it's got some issues that it needs to address. Uh, copyright's probably one of the biggest. Uh, I'm not surprised they've had a few problems over the Pacquiao fight, but well, it seems obvious, isn't it? It does seem obvious. It's a live um, stream video that you're going to point at the telly. Yeah, I, I've been at a football match and about, and I thought mm, probably best not to get Periscope at this point. But it's so easy to use. Uh, it's, it, I think it's, it's 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 great, and I think I think that will be successful for them. Um, but I think the the the, the, the main point here is. Um, there's a there's a quote from uh, a technology blogger called John Gruber who says I think what Wall Street wants is a pipe dream for Twitter to turn into another Facebook. It's I don't think it's going to be Facebook. It has to be realistic about what it's about. But in terms of revenue, apparently the revenue is seventy four percent up year over year. Three hundred million it's out is not as much as you expect when you measure that against a billion people have been there and gone away again. So we talked about engagement early on and keeping people in the brand. Why have they gone away? you kind of got to get them back. And, and uh, I think that's all about, as we touched on earlier on, ease of use, curation, being able to get at stuff a lot easier. I mean, we talk about TweetDeck and stuff like that. A lot of things we use around Twitter to help us try and understand Twitter a bit easier. Um, so I think for, for a lot of, lot of the world, they want it to be perhaps more more friendly, more easy to use, more easier to get through. And uh, it is great that you've got all these people that can follow you, but it's almost a, such a noise out there. You kind of want it... We're almost going back to editing a little bit here, but you do want some sort of curation throughout that, I think. Well, last quick question to you both, because we are running out of metaphorical tape, as it were, but as I always like to say. But do you think that social media itself, in terms of the whole marketplace, is maturing insofar as a certain number of people, you know, uh, of a certain demographic go on Twitter, and then certain people do Facebook, you know, certain people do Pinterest, etc., etc. It's almost as if you, you, if you want to speak to a certain market, you kind of know the route to market. W- would you agree with that, Rebecca? Or? Yeah, I suppose I would agree with that slightly. Um, I mean, don't get me started on Pinterest. I'm obsessed with it at the moment. Um, but I mean, I go on it because I'm decorating a house. So that, that's that's and my market. That's, that's what I'm going on it like for. That, it's brilliant it? for things like that. Or I'm sure if you're, you know, planning a wedding or 
planning a holiday. It's great things like that. Or as planning well. a meal. A lot, of, a lot of our household meals are, <laughs> yeah. are on Pinterest, apparently. Twitter is much more about getting people's opinions and um, immediate reaction to things. And uh, when I just, so, uh, just off the top of my head, when um, Oscar Pistorius' uh, trial was going on, I mean, I, I was, people were absorbed by Twitter because that was the quickest way to get the information from the courtroom. Um, whereas Facebook is much more delayed um, and Twitter is, you can interact with anyone, it's anonymous, whereas Facebook is much more about interacting with your friends and family. So yeah, maybe in that sense that there is a bit more social media finding its niche, but let's not forget, we're talking about the Western world and all these emerging markets coming through and there's all this uh, rising middle class and all of these social media brands are going to be pushing into those areas. And so we're going to see the growth numbers just keep going up and up and up, I would imagine. Uh, I I just think it's interesting with, with social media, what areas they want to move into. So we're talking, we're seeing them, number of these companies now talking to publishers like ourselves because they want to have relationships with those publishers and to me that's really interesting so rebecca how do people follow you on twitter and how do people access your writing at the times so you can follow me on twitter it's at beck clancy or you can go on to uh, the times website which is www.thetimes.co.uk and if you go to the business section i'm there all day excellent pete you good self uh, at pete picton um it's fairly twitter. simple isn't yeah. it <laughs> pretty straightforward uh, uh, that and the occasional periscopes which I hope you all enjoy and for those that want to follow me online I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard you can also go to mediafocus.org.uk and leave your email address in the box and receive a shiny email once a fortnight letting you know when the new podcast is out but that's it for me thanks ever so much for listening I'm Paul Blanchard the associate producer was John Greenaway catch you next time A Big Things Media Production <laughs> Big Things